Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Against small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google Workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month free trial by going to nordpass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really incredible story, you know, from this founder. You know, we're gonna talk about going from the tech side to a business guy and now to actually, you know, writing this rocket ship that he founded. So I think that we're gonna be learning about, you know, building, scaling, fundraising, you know, all the good stuff that we all like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Michael Fay. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. So let's do a little of a walk through memory lane. So how was life in Ohio and growing up? <laughs> you know, I grew up in a very small town and I uh, went to a very small school. And, you know, I think it was a, a very special experience. You know, we, we, we got raised on amazing hard work values and got to work with uh, or grow up with amazing people. So uh, I feel blessed for that, but it definitely wasn't a lifestyle I wanted to maintain the rest of my life. And out of all things, Michael, what got you into soccer? <laughs> you know, I played almost every sport under the sun. I wasn't quite tall enough to be, you know, special at basketball. I uh, wasn't quite big enough to be special at, uh, at football. But soccer, I had the right size and the right build to, to go to college with. And uh, I enjoyed the heck out of it. It was a wonderful combination of co competition and personal capabilities. So I loved it. 
and uh, and I still do to this day. I love I love watching it um, as well as every sport. Just just a pleasure. And 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 obviously you use that to to see if you could get to become an astronaut. So what <laughs> what happened on the way? Well, I got a degree in engineering physics uh, from a wonderful school called uh, called Emory Riddle. Had an amazing college uh, experience there. And as a young kid, you just thought, you know, why not be an astronaut? I was graduating at the time where the usage of astronauts, the number of astronauts being put into space was, you know, wildly less. The number of American astronauts going in even even less. It was really apparent that, you know, with all the amazing candidates, unfortunately, I wasn't going to cut it. Um, despite finishing very high in my class and good grades, there were PhDs and all sorts of things that one would have to obtain to get there in that journey. And the lure of the economics of software pulled me, you know, out of my my studies and and got me to uh, forgo my my PhD efforts and and you know kind of go into the dark side and start writing software and making money early on. That's amazing. And uh, obviously, right after school, you know, you went into the into the tech side, you know, of things. You know, you became a developer at Lockheed Martin, and and it's interesting, like how you go. You know, kind of like from more the techie side to perhaps more customer inter interfacing, you know, type of thing with Mercury. And I know that that the transition to Mercury and how you got Mercury, there's something interesting there and worthwhile sharing. So what happened? How did you land that job? Yeah, so I knew about Mercury it was this amazing company that had built a, a phenomenal product and, and it was just this really exciting place that I wanted to be a part of. So they were looking for a Java specialist. And uh, I had taught myself every language up into that point that I ever used. So when they asked me if I was great at Java, of course I was. I said it was amazing. And at that point in time, Java was coming onto the scene, so they didn't really have any experts to challenge me. So I, uh, I claimed to be great at it. They asked me to start in two weeks, and I told them I needed four. And I spent the next four weeks you know, learning Java and trying to become a, a Java specialist, which uh, I think was a just-in-time scenario. It worked out great, but... Uh, was probably one of the scariest things I ever did was was uh, to to make that jump without having the creds to back it up. And there you were for a few years, and then you know right after there you actually went to McAfee, where where you did spend quite a bit of time, and you actually went through the ranks all the way to becoming a CTO. Is that right? Yeah, I started on the pre-sales side and uh, ended up running a support as well, which was my first chance or, or services actually professional services, which was my first P and L exposure. Um, and uh, just kept trying to add as much value as I could. Eventually, I became CTO, um, which was a phenomenal role. Uh, and then finally, after that, GM of the enterprise business. And, and all this was happening, you know, that the later stuff as Intel acquired uh, McAfee. So I got to experience the power of Intel and some of the capabilities there. But uh, it, it, McAfee was, was quite a learning ground and an amazing process for me and, and my journey in development as an executive. So then you actually ended up landing in Bluecoat. And not only that, you took 350 people with you. I mean, how the hell do you do that? I'm sure they were not happy. <laughs> well, it was a combination of a lot of events. Uh, McAfee had just been acquired. I moved over to Blue Coat with an amazing CEO as his number two uh, in, in uh, Greg Clark. Um, and Blue Coat really had transitioned. Uh, they, they were owned by uh, Tomo Bravo. And they were moving out of that restructuring into a growth phase right as Intel was trying to right-size the McAfee business to meet the margins they needed. So as they were thinking about how big did they need to be, I had to grow. And luckily, you know, after being at McAfee for so long, I had built such strong relationships. The first thing I did was hire some key executives to join me at Blue Coat. And then it was the snowball of, you know, the next executive bringing on another 10 people and those people bringing on another 10 people. And 
before we knew it, after uh, a couple of years, it ended up being, you know, uh, in, in the three and four hundredths of how many people we'd worked with. And the best part about that was it was a team that knew how to sell together. It was a team that knew how to work together. So we were able to, to increase the velocity of BlueCut in a really substantive manner. And we had the support of that company to do so. Um, so it was, it was phenomenal. I think if Intel wasn't laying off people, it would have been a lot harder. Obviously, I, I, I didn't solicit. I, I opened up the job recs and people applied. Um, but really, it was about people wanting to work with the people they love. And that became a bit of a centerpiece for me moving forward. You know, really focusing on people that enjoy being together and are great at their jobs allows you to build a very special team. So you actually, this is the time where you went through the second acquisition, right? Because you went through <laughs> the acquisition of McAfee with Intel, now, you know, Blue Code with Symantec. So what did you also get, you know, through going through those two acquisitions? Because going through an acquisition is not easy. You got the integration and you got all the pressure to deliver on the promise and make sure that the uh, uh, acquisition ends up being a success. So what was, what was that for you and what did you get from that experience? Well, you're right. I think one of the most challenging things to do is to be acquired or to acquire and assimilate, right? Both are very, very difficult, the integration process. And the semantic one was made even more challenging. They acquired Blue Coat, but then appointed uh, our CEO, Greg Clark, and myself as CEO and president. So we ended up running this company that just acquired us. So we had to learn that company while integrating our own. And, you know, you, it reaffirmed a lesson I think we all know as fast as possible, identify the great people and lean on them as much as they can handle. It was the only way to do it. We surrounded ourselves with amazing talent. We set our goals, made them clear. One of the goals was massive cost reduction to get the margins in line. We took almost a billion of cost out of the organization in you know, under 18 months, and we got the products back on the right track. But that wasn't done by an executive or two. It was really done by a culmination of great executives that were empowered to own their areas. So as fast as possible, we broke up the problem, gave somebody an owner, and let them rock and roll on that item. Uh, only way to move fast. And uh, definitely reaffirmed in that. But huge challenge. I, I don't wish it on my worst enemy to have to go do that. It's, uh, it's a 24-hour day job, and it's exhausting. And, you know, then right after this, you know, you became the CEO of D2IQ. Now, very interesting, you know, sequence of events here in your career, Michael, because going from the technical side to the business side and being able to master both is extremely difficult. In fact, most engineers uh, or, or, or technical people, they fail, you know, when, when doing that transition. So how was that transition for you? And then also, you know, like how did this role, you know, on, on D2IQ come about and, and what were you guys doing there? Yeah. You know, the transition into, into the business side, I really have to thank, you know, a multitude of, of mentors and executives that allowed me to join those conversations as the technical expert. And in so doing, I could sponge and learn what it meant to run the business, what it meant to build a sales force, how to motivate a sales force you know, how to run a, a real P&L, how to think about investments and prioritize those. We had amazing leaders at each of those companies that I could learn from. When I left Blue Coat, you know, I needed to take some time out of security uh, based on non-competes and things like that. And uh, the uh, Andreessen team approached me about uh, joining this company called Mesosphere, which at one point in time was an incredibly high flyer. And, and they were trying to figure out, you know, what their next part of their journey was. 
and they wanted an outside executive to come in and help the company scale. And so that's what I joined. And, and quickly when I joined, I realized that, that they had a product positioning problem as well as a scale problem. So we reshaped the product. We stopped focusing on the Mesos platform and started focusing on Kubernetes, which you know definitely is, is carried the day in that space. Renamed the company so we could allow the company to reinvent itself and not have to carry the, the baggage of the past. So that's how it became day two IQ. And we structured to resize the company in a way that it could be successful and grow from that new point. Uh, it was an amazing journey. Um, after about a year, year and a half, I realized, you know, this really needs to be run by its original founders. It's, a, it's at a very technical part of its journey. It's not at a scale point. So position that back, gave it back to the founders. They've done a phenomenal job, and now they've got a thriving, healthy business. So um, it was a, uh, a massive experience in branding, rebranding, and I learned one incredibly valuable insight. What led them down the difficult path is they did something we're all told to do. They listened to their customers. And I will say that's a great mantra, but it should be modified slightly. Listen to your customers and prospects. Your prospects provide you amazing insight. Your customers who make the bet on you end up in an echo chamber with you at times. They love the solution. They want to see the solution more. Sometimes hearing why the others didn't buy it in the first place will teach you everything you need to know. And that's what I learned there. I went out and talked to the people who didn't buy, and I learned that Kubernetes was this you know, overwhelming wave that we had to get on, regardless of how we felt about our technical platform. And that's what led us to get the company back on that right track. And you can totally understand how the original founders you know, had built this amazing product, and they had all these bright customers guiding them on where it needed to go. And they just needed to modify it and add some prospects into that. So it was a huge lesson learned of that journey. And obviously, the immediate step that needed to happen for Island to come to life. So, <laughs> you know, as they say, the ideas, you know, they're there. You don't even know they're there. And then over time, you know, they just take different shapes and forms. And, you know, for you, what, what do you think were the events that needed to happen in order for this company to see the light of the day? Well, first and foremost, Dan Amiga, who's my co-founder, when I left Symantec, he reached out to me and he wanted me to help with some of the startups he was working with. And uh, so I leaned in as a board member and we, we stayed in contact that way. Little did I know he had this bright idea he was brewing up that he was trying to, you know, if you will, start to engineer his company. And uh, Dan brought this idea to me of what if the browser collaborated, integrated with the enterprise to do some of the common functions in cybersecurity. And the first one he had in mind was around web filtering. And I thought it was a really bright idea. It might be difficult. And I actually offered to fund me and, and try to give him his seed money. And Dan stood firm and said, listen, I don't need your money. I'll raise money. I want you as, as our CEO. And I went off and thought about it. And, and a very important individual in my life, our chief strategy officer, Brian Kenyon, and I debated it for some time. And it was in that journey over a period of about a week, we realized that what Dan had stumbled upon wasn't a minor security feature, an upgrade, a one-off. He really stumbled upon this enterprise browser concept that had virtually endless possibilities. And we started to realize we could tackle almost any area, whether it's productivity, performance, security, you know, uh, data rights, data management, whatever, at that privileged layer it got really simple to solve problems. And it was really in that conversation, I actually came back to Dan after turning him down and saying, Dan, I wanna join up. I wanna do this, and here's why. I wanna sell this. 
and Dan agreed and, and saw this future work concept. And we really, it, you know, in that iterative process amongst the three of us, came up with what would be the enterprise browser. And, uh, you know, Dan was the focal point of that, of that technical part about what was possible, but how we sold it, how we would monetize is really where we spent the bulk of our energy. So after we agreed to do that, about 30 days later, we, uh, we started the process of reaching out to our network and not our, not the investors, amazing CIOs and CISOs and technologists and, you know, execs from all across the industry and started bringing the idea to them and hearing them rev it and modify it and point out the challenges. And it gave us the confidence to really put our whole heart and soul into it. So when we finally called up our first VC, I had already canvassed about 100 CIOs and CISOs on, is this an idea that makes sense to you? And I had their endorsement of how it would work and what would work for them. So when we were talking with the VCs, we weren't pitching an idea as much as we were pitching a company. We knew we were going to build this. We knew it was going to happen. Now, who was going to be our partner in that? And so we got to approach that in a very, very aggressive way. And we literally asked for $20 million in seed funding out of the gate because we weren't here to test an idea. We had already done that. We were here to build it. And uh, that was a little bit of a difference from, from us versus a lot of seed companies. My God, if I was to be on the receiving end on that and I was the investor, I would be ready to run through a wall of bricks. <laughs> Unbelievable, Michael. Now, now, let me ask you this. I mean, obviously, really big uh, seed round. Uh, I guess for the folks that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Island? How do you guys make money? So we make money by um, selling, you know, uh, per year user licenses of an enterprise browser. So think of this as a browser that is built on the Chromium open source project. So it has the same look and feel as the browsers we all know, but integrates back into a management console where the policy of the corporation that runs it manifests itself. So it governs everything in the last mile, whether that's things that impact your security, where data can go, where it can't go, how you connect, what network you use, can you cut, cut copy, paste, what can you do inside of that? Or what is the performance of that environment? How do you move network traffic or the actual business side of it? How do you auto-populate data? How do you automate things inside of that layer? And then finally, the end user. How do, we, how do we delight the end user? How do we give them a more productive environment? But we monetize that per license seat, and it's you know, usually uh, at the ROI of taking out a whole stack of tools that they had to use to accomplish the same thing with a non-cooperative browser, a consumer browser. So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. But if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Cruise. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every cell situation, complete with highlights and notes. And it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that. Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com 
to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the wingman your sales needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing businesses. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. Now, let's go back to the seed round of 20 million. You were obviously racing not on, you know, just an idea or on a deck. I mean, you were you were racing on on stuff that you knew, you know, I mean, you had validation, you were ready to really build and 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 make it happen. I guess what were you able, because 20 million is a lot of money for a seed round, you know, so even if you are ready to make things happen, how are you able to walk the investors through the canvas with the same colors that you have in your own head? <laughs> so we built an actual pitch deck that is very similar to the one we give customers now, three years later. And we approached it as almost how we would sell. And then we game theoried out all the challenges an investor might have talk to me about the TAM, talk to me about adoption, you know, which markets are going to go after and, and really built that out. So after we gave that pitch, we waited for the response and then immediately could jump in to supporting slides on that. And we were able to show them that we had thought this out in ways and depths that they had never. Where I think a lot of times the VCs see holes that, you know, and they give people things to go back and think about. We had obviously game theory this out. Now, we were definitely helped out by the fact that we were known people in the industry. We knew a lot of these investors, you know, had known us through the years. Um, but that whole process, which we had just, I think, the best of the best investors we were able to talk to and, and get on board, we were, we were fortunate enough to choose between a, a good chunk, about 10 different investors, in a two-week period. And so... Uh, Two weeks, we, we settled on Sequoia and CyberStarts. We chose CyberStarts because they had this phenomenal network to help companies build and validate their first set of deals. And then we chose Sequoia because, you know, certainly with the brand name and capabilities of Sequoia behind you, that validates a lot. And this was an idea that would be challenged by, is it real? Or is it just some crazy idea a couple guys had? So we wanted that, you know, Uber logo of Sequoia. We also wanted Doug Leone, who was the head of Sequoia on our board. We thought that further validated us, as well as Gilly, the head of CyberStarts. And that was the, the first choice. There were some other great funds we really debated on, and it was a tough decision, but the combination of that partnership of CyberStarts and Sequoia was just too much to pass up. And how is it like to have someone like Doug Leone in your board? I mean, this guy is a, is a legend. So how 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 is you know, really board dynamics, you know, when you have yeah. people of this caliber. You know, and you mix it in with Jeff Horing, who's on our board, who's, who's you know, a legend in his own right. 
Uh, my board's terrifying. Um, they're they're amazingly <laughs> capable people, and um, their insight is just uh, scary smart. And and the only thing that makes it you know kind of a palatable is you realize they're on your side and they want nothing but the best for you, and and that's what what carries you through it. But I, I will tell you. Uh, we were debating at one point in time, like, were we ready to have a guy like Doug, you know, riding on top of us? And, and you know, because he is intense. And and one of my trusted friends said, you know, Mike, why would we have it any other way? We're only here to succeed. Having somebody push and lean on us is exactly what we need. And uh, that's what we did. The amount of business experience now on that board between Sheila Jordan and and Stephen from Jordan and, you know, the Cisco team. It is a phenomenal room to bring an idea to and to validate a business plan. They're also senior enough. They respect where we're at in our journey. We're not 20-something-year-olds building our first company, but also we're not startup guys. So we need some advice for certain, but the right advice. Yeah, it's an amazing experience. To be on a fly in the wall of that boardroom, I love hearing, hearing them talk and debate. It is a battle of the titans come in and, and just brilliant ideas afloat. That's amazing. Now. So far for the company, uh, how much capital have you guys raised to date? So we've raised a little over a quarter billion. Got it. And what has been the experience of, obviously, you know, we talked about the seed round of 20 million. You know, when you raise so much money to seed, to a certain degree, you're also setting up expectations for the next <laughs> round. So what, 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 what were the, uh, you know, the, the sequence of events, you know, going from cycle to cycle? How did those expectations also, you know, shift over the course? Yeah. You know, I think first and foremost, it's important to know we didn't set 20 million because Dan and I like money. That wasn't the reason. We set 20 million because we knew, unlike a lot of products, especially in cybersecurity, ours was going to touch end users. And we had to, from the start, build a fully flushed out product. There was no way we were going to be able to run a broken pilot, you know, where, where a lot of times a product can be built and it just touches a couple administrators and they can wait for core functionality. But when you're impacting end users, you can't go to somebody and say, hey, your end users are going to be less you know, productive today. Wait a minute. So we knew we needed enough capital to really build the product. And, and that was the reason for the 20 is let's build the right company to begin with, with the right engineers. So we didn't hire 20 individual contributor developers underneath Dan and try to make it work. We hired our architects. We hired our VPs of development and then hired the teams so we could build the right product. So at that point, you know, we had a product. We were able to show the product to, to organizations. And the more progressive uh, investors all have these CIO and CISO, CISO networks. They're all out there saying, what's hot? What are you seeing? And it just so happened that who we were working with overlaid with the Insight Teams network. And they were able to get educated to what we were doing, understand it was exciting. And they reached out to us and said, listen, we'd like to invest. We were still you know, only uh, probably four or five million into the seed round, weren't even thinking about that at that time. But they came at a valuation that really felt like that's where we would be six months or a year from now. So it made sense to go there and having that additional capital, I think at the time it was another 80 million, um, made sense. And, and the Stripes teams joined up with them. So it gives another group of experts to call upon. Uh, and, you know, to be frank, we'd be fools not to do it. So we did it. And uh, that was our Series A, so unsolicited Series A. And then we had the same thing for Series B. Things were starting to take effect. Uh, we hadn't gone, come out of um, uh, stealth yet, 
And, and that's probably an interesting point. I kept the company and stuff a lot longer than most startups. We were having a wonderful ability to get to customers and get pilots and get engagement without being out of stealth. So we resisted the urge to beat our chest and try to tell the world what we were doing. We enjoyed anonymity about it. Where a lot of companies, the first minute they take money, they run out and tell everybody, look, we got funded. We didn't want to start that clock. We didn't want to start the clock on, okay, are you selling? What are you selling? We wanted to make sure the product was ready. And luckily, our investors agreed with us. They were happy we stayed in stealth. And it was only at the Series B when we realized, listen, we're about to take another hundred and something million dollars. We probably should tell the world what we're working on. And, uh, and it's time to start to transition these pilots to monetization. And uh, that's when uh, we ended up uh, taking our next round about a month after coming out of stealth. And that valued it as at a billion three. Um, and uh, we opened up that round because we felt a billion three for that early in the journey was a, a generous valuation. So we, uh, we opened that up a bit and uh, filled it up to the quarter of a billion investing we have now. Um, but uh, it was a, an amazing journey um, with, with you know, Insight and Stripes and Georgian and these that all, all chipped in and had the confidence what we were building uh, mattered. And we're very fortunate that the customers we had were all willing to talk and they're all willing to take their calls and explain what, you know, why it was valuable and why this crazy idea would actually work. And uh, it, was a, uh, it was a crazy experience to go through that and hear the company valued at a billion, you know, that early in the journey. And then to have it affirmed recently, you know, it's, it, it, you know, I know right now it's hard to get evaluations up there. So we're very blessed. We haven't had to worry about ours. No kidding. I mean, talking about being the co-founder of a company that is at a billion three and being able to say that it was a generous valuation. And who would have told you that? Eh? Unbelievable, Michael. Now, now, question here for the people that are listening to, to understand here the scope and size. I mean, anything that you can share around, you know, number of employees or anything else, you know, to, sure. to get an idea? We're closing in on 200 employees. Um, you know, we've got uh, a very, very large R&D organization, which is the bulk of our, our employees. We're engaged with about half the Fortune 100. Um, we are, uh, we think, you know, we're, we're not sure yet. We're in the middle, we're at the end of our Q4. So hopefully if we execute, I think we'll be one of the, uh, the best performing category creators, uh, first year of sales ever. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of hot startups, a lot of them that, that take business, you know, better mousetrap, steal existing budget category creations, its own nightmare. You uh, have to go into a company that's never thought about what you're doing. They, even if they get excited, they have to figure out how to put in their work product, how to break budget free, all of that stuff. So category creation usually takes a little bit longer. So we're, we're doing very well on that journey. Um, and, uh, you know, despite the economic challenges, you know, we're going to double in size next year and, and continue to press on. Um, things are going, you know, we are at least two years ahead of the first plan we built for the company. Um, and uh, you know, right now, the rollouts are going well, the adoption is going well, and the large transactions are, are happening much faster than we ever dreamed. So we're, we're very, we're very um, blessed in how this is working out. Uh, with that said, we got a long way to go. We got a lot to prove. We got a lot of deployments to, to make happen. And, uh, you know, we still have to prove, you know, the world that this category is as meaningful as we believe it is. There's a lot of confusion about the category, old legacy secure browser thought processes come up in people's mind. And so there's a, a predisposition to assuming what we're doing. 
every time we show somebody, they realize, oh, they, they misunderstood it. So at some point, we have to get more household and not have to fight everything hand-to-hand combat. Um, but all in all, uh, things are going well, and, and we're hiring strong, amazing you know, people. And you were talking there about you know, what's coming. So I guess the question that comes to mind is, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Michael, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Island is fully realized. You know, besides <laughs> that world being beautiful, what, what would it look like? You could safely go to any device you chose and use it for whatever purpose you had. But when you chose to go to work, you'd click on your company's browser and that would be your work, you'll be your work format. Everything you need would be there. It'd be there safely. It'd be there securely. And as much automation and productivity that could be provided to you would be. So whether that's a tablet you're working on at home, your work computer, but we would stop drawing this delineation between managed devices and unmanaged devices and BYOD, and we would just be able to adopt self-IT. And if you got a computer and you can install a browser, you can work safely and productively. That would be a wonderful thing for us to do and uh, to simplify the back-end supporting stacks. Now, what does it mean? We're an independent company. We are a meaningful company. And most importantly, we're a great place to work. Um, that that would be you know a wonderful way to wake up. No, no, no kidding, no kidding. Now we've been talking here about the future, so let's take a look at the past. You know, with with some degree of reflection here. And if you had the opportunity of going back in time, Michael, you know, maybe you know you go back to the days where you were still kicking the ball, you know, behind the <laughs> net and and being a soccer player, but you know, wondering, you know, like, what, what would that be? You know, what would that future look like for you? And, and maybe, you know, you were able to look at it from, a, from an entrepreneurial perspective, no? Uh, thinking about, like, putting a solution to a problem that maybe, you know, you would encounter. If you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self and giving that younger Michael one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? So I think I give two pieces of advice, one personal and one business. Um, personal. I would try to convince myself to not worry about so much stuff, to enjoy the ride, enjoy the experience, learn as you go. It's going to work out. You know, I tried to control too many variables as I grew up and make sure that everything was planned out and everything was governed and everything was managed to that. And in reality, business just doesn't work that way on a holistic scale. Your career doesn't work that way. What you need to do is focus on being around people that matter, people that can teach you people that grow you, people that expand you, and trust in, in that collective good. I would have had a lot less sleepless nights, a lot more fun along the way, and probably end it in the same spot, if not better. So I think that's personally. From an enterprise perspective, it took me really late in my career to start asking the question, why not? You know, when you think about introducing a new browser into this space, you got to be a little nuts to do that. But then again, it makes perfect sense. And the sooner you can start looking at the problem, not as an ideation or iteration of the past, but just freshly, the sooner you're gonna find a great idea that, you, that is worth spending your career on and is worth building a company for. I think too many startups and too many products, which I've been a part of, we're just trying to outdo the last one, trying to, trying to not make the mistakes the product before it made, and while that's not a bad business model and it may provide things, it doesn't provide the inspiration, the motivation that 
a true unique solution does to a problem. And, and maybe I would have told myself to go look for problems that, that I could find that for and spend my career more on those than optimizing existing platforms. Um, it'll be a lot more fun and, and a lot more motivational, I think. Wow. Very profound, Michael. So uh, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what would, what would be the best way for them to do so? You know, Mike at island.io. Go ahead, shoot me a note. I'd, I'd love amazing. to hear from you. It's that simple. Easy enough. Easy enough. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.